we're back. This is episode nine. What you just heard is the Columbus Blue Jackets goal horn, and that previews our next guest. I had a fantastic time chatting with the assistant coach for the Columbus Blue Jackets and skills coach, Kenny McCutton. So let's take it right there to the interview with him. Hope you enjoy. All right. I'm here with current assistant coach of the Columbus Blue Jackets. He's been a professional skills coach for over 30 years, having taught well over 100,000 athletes, ranging from learn to skate all the way to NHL players and Olympians. He's a member of the Illinois Hockey Hall of Fame and quite possibly has the best collection of hockey and golf memorabilia around. Thanks for talking to me, Kenny McCutton. How are you? Great, great to be with you, man. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to me. So we had just finished the season. Uh, you'd finished with Columbus uh, three years in a row. They made the playoffs. Uh, you finished in the bubble. What was that experience like? The bubble is something I hope we never, ever have to do again, obviously. But uh, to talk about it later on in life and say that you were part of something like that will always be amazing. Um, you know, 12 teams in, in Toronto, 12 teams in Edmonton. Uh, I was in Toronto and we were at the Royal York. So don't feel sorry for me because it's a beautiful <laughs> hotel. Um, but um, it was really, really different. Uh, I think more than anything, than even then being shut away from the public and not seeing much of the public at all. Um, it was strange to be playing hockey in July and August. Um, it, it all started pad early July with uh, the voluntary skates players coming into town to prepare for training camp. Training camp obviously prepared you for the bubble. Uh, being a month in the bubble in the same room is a little different, but everybody's got to go through it. And I think the most amazing thing, Pat, that we don't talk about or you don't hear too much is what those final two teams had to go through to be in that bubble that length of time. And let's not forget about the referees. Let's not forget about the off-ice officials, uh, the people that made this happen because it went off without a hitch. And, um, to be part of that, uh, for those people who are in that, you know, environment for two months, not seeing their family and friends, uh, it's, a, a, that's difficult. So hats off to those two final teams. Absolutely. And the NHL pulled it off. And as a fan, it, it was great to see, but I know it was hard on the players. Um, and so with 2020, it's been a crazy year. There was a little hiatus in the, in the year. Um, was there anything personally that, you know, you had a little bit more time to do that you, you, you wanted to, and this little time off? Well, you'll never forget uh, prior to the bubble is when, you know, March the 12th, we were getting ready to play the Pittsburgh Penguins on a Wednesday. And Tuesday night I was doing, a, a, you know, you, you know my background with kids hockey. And here I was doing a peewee clinic on the main rink called Nationwide, our main building, 17,000 seats. And I was told by the Zamboni driver that we may be playing the following night against Pittsburgh with no fans. Well, we, I was like, wow. And to hear that, that's when the, the reality came in and uh, about COVID and the virus. And uh, the next day uh, we were getting prepared for a meeting at 930. And uh, I was going to be bringing guys out on the ice for 10 o'clock uh, for a morning skate. And uh, we were turned away. We, we left the building and uh, I had a feeling it might be very, very long because uh, I mean, when you saw what was happening around the world, uh, it, was, it was so easy for sport to end and life to be disrupted. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was different, Pat, because I believe we had about, I think nine or 10 games left in the season. And, uh, next thing you know, uh, you're done. And, uh, I, I came back to Crystal Lake, Illinois, where I live. And I've been living here since 1997. Um, 
and really strange to be home at that time because you want to finish off the season. You want to be in that first round, like you had mentioned the last three years. And, um, and, and we have such a great team that uh, uh, there's nothing less than trying to win the Stanley Cup every single year under John Tortorella and Nikki Felino, our captain. So we have a, a very strong culture. And obviously we wanted to continue playing, but uh, life was disrupted. I do want to talk about that culture in a little bit, but uh, now that you're back, you know, most, most uh, let's say athletes are, you know, would put up their feet a little bit, but not you, you're right back at it. You're helping the local high school teams out. I saw the article the other day. You just yeah. love it. And that's so cool to see. And what makes it so special coming back and being involved with that? Well, the high school level is pretty neat because I haven't seen those kids in five years. And so you, you saw them last, what, maybe as a squirt or, or early peewee maybe. Um, but uh uh, just to be with uh, younger athletes and, uh, and, and, and give your time and be part of something like that's an awful lot of fun. I wish I can get entrenched a little bit more. I wish I could do some might hockey and squirt and peewee levels. Uh, but I think I have to stay away from the rink a little bit for the fact that uh, we don't know where all this is leading with the way things are uh, with an uptick and all that uh, with COVID cases here in Illinois. So um, I think I'll just keep it limited to uh, certain friends that I enjoy uh, going out for their hockey teams or their hockey clubs. And uh, the nearest rink obviously is the three surfaces next door to my house. And uh, uh, to go out there with Barrington High School and the JV and uh, and, and the varsity uh, through Steve Martins, I, I enjoy that. And, uh, you know, 155, I was out just recently with uh, the other three high schools that are put together in the Crystal Lake uh, area. So I saw varsity, a hybrid varsity slash JV team, and then a JV team. So. Uh, Pat, it was kind of strange because I haven't put three hours together in a while, uh, being on the ice, because obviously in the NHL, you're not on the ice for three hours. Uh, so that was a little bit different, but, uh, uh, no, I thoroughly enjoy being back with, uh, with, with kids programs. So I did want to talk about, uh, the creation of sort of your Midwest elite hockey school, you know, 30 years ago, you had started that with Grant Mulvey, who That's was correct. at the Blackhawks. And was that common back then to have the, the, the skills that to provide individual skills? Honestly, Pat, that's a terrific question. I don't think I've ever been asked that. Uh, when Grant Mulvey and I started it, we were together for nine and a half years. And I know for a fact that we did something that nobody had done in Illinois. And that was being part of hockey clubs and being part of hockey teams all over the map. It could be from the North shore all the way to uh, Glen Ellen, uh, all the way to Crystal Lake. And what you were doing, Pat, was you were going out with these hockey clubs from basically learn to skate all the way to midgets. And coaches were allowing strangers to come on the ice and teach skills. And, um, to be honest with you, I remember, remember when Grant Mulvey approached me, it was at a Blackhawk game. I was uh, up in a, up in the press box of the old stadium. And he says, Kenny, how about starting this program with me? And I said, what the summer months? And he says, summer, fall and winter and spring. And we only take like three weeks off. And I thought to myself, there's no way this is going to work in the fall, winter and spring, because what coach, what, what group of coaches are going to allow us out? What membership will allow us out? What president and board will allow us out? Well, he says, to, he said to me, let me be, uh, I'll be the main guy as far as uh, to start it up, uh, the celebrity status from, from my NHL experience. 
and I'll let you be the guy because you played all the way throughout your Illinois hockey throughout in Illinois. And you've got an awful lot of contacts. Let's put that together, the you and I, and let's see what we can do this fall. Um, I should say this summer coming up because he met me probably in January, February. So we started our first hockey program, um, but I was working with some teams uh, prior to that, two years prior on my own, but not going out of the door to work with clubs during the fall and winter. So it was, um, it was a hit right away. And the first hockey club to allow us in the door was the Flames organization. And I'm sure you might've played against the Flames when you were younger out of Glen Ellen. And I ended up spending 17 years in that building. But um, yeah, it was uh, honestly, we didn't, we really didn't have to uh, worry about things. It almost came to us. Uh, the more, the more that we got on the ice and, and delivered and, and brought a discipline program to the masses, we were accepted overnight. And honestly, I believe we were the first group to do it ever in Illinois. There's not somebody that I haven't talked to that's played youth hockey in Illinois that doesn't recognize your name or the, you know, the power skating week with coach Kenny. Um, So your impact in this area has been huge. Um, When did you, and you said you kind of started snowballing and it started building to more and more clubs. When was your first break, so to speak, to where you started working with, you know, professional athletes and junior teams? Well, it it came shortly after that. uh, And we all need breaks in life, uh, Pat, in every way. I mean, uh, Anybody who says they do things on their own, they'd be lying in, in, in any field. But uh, first break real, realistically came probably within our first year. I mean, obviously, Grampy in the, the past NHL for 10 years or 11 years, he had the contacts. Uh, we got our foot in the door with the Blackhawks right away in the summer. So we started seeing the Stu Grimsons. Uh, we, we had a Dwayne Sutter, I should say, uh, it was not a Dwayne. It was uh, Brent, Brent Sutter. There's six of them. So it's easy to mix up, <laughs> but, uh, we got Brent Sutter. Chelios was out there. Ronick was out there in, in those days. So obviously when you start working with summer groups like that, of that kind of clientele, uh, that's like working, you know, with the Connor McDavid's of the world and the Sidney Crosby's and the Cam Atkinson's. And, uh, uh, so, I mean, um, that, that gave us instant credibility in amongst the pros. We had the credibility throughout Illinois with youth level. We had that nailed down. But uh, I took it to another level working with the pros because I, I had a different approach. And my approach was to work, always work around the athletes and don't try to teach athletes the same exact thing. Work around the best traits and, and, and bring, uh, bring nothing but confidence to the athlete, whether they're in the NHL or whether they were working with you as a kid. <laughs> Uh, trying to bring um, nothing but positives because so many coaches are always trying to work on things that kids constantly need work on. Well, before you tackle that, let's tackle the things that, that are fun. And I think that's what so many coaches were missing through so many years. And it's changing now. Uh, fun is a big part of it today in today's athletics with kids, whether you're, you see it in the gym, whether you're seeing it off ice working with hockey players or other athletes, you got to bring fun number one, Pat, as you know. Uh, you apply fun. That means you got them hook, lined, and sinker. But then there is the most important thing after that. And the most important thing is, and I call it delivering. Uh, no, no different than an athlete delivering on the field or on the court or on the ice. A coach must deliver. And that means um, always coming up with a constant game plan. Uh, having a program throughout not only – segmented for two weeks 
but a month, three months, the year. And it's a lesson plan, no different than a school teacher. Mm -hmm. And um, my lesson plan was basically the same with all the hockey clubs that I was seeing. When you mentioned 100,000 kids, 100 plus thousand kids, yeah, it was up to like 125. But I was seeing roughly about 1,000 kids a week, uh, maybe 1,100 kids a week between all the programs from Learn to Skate to, uh, to uh, Midgets for maybe five different organizations. So obviously if a club has 400 numbers here and three numbers, 300 numbers here, you get up to 1100 very, very quickly. And I think that really grew when I got to Crystal Lake because Crystal Lake, I was with Crystal Lake for 21 years and that grew to 850 members. Well, I saw all 850 members. So later on in life, that number probably grew to 2000 kids a week. And, uh, I never forgot about the learn to skate, Pat. Uh, that was a big thing for me because I wanted to, uh, I wanted to be that first face that the kids saw when it came to uh, being introduced to the game of hockey. And that was very, very important to me. But uh, also learn to skate to me was literally trying to get a stick in their hand as quickly as possible and a puck on the ice because the game is played with a stick and a puck. So teach their edge work teach their stops, teach their turns, teach their backward skating, and let's start playing hockey. And Crystal Lake, the hockey club, did such a wonderful job back in those days because they would graduate from me almost to like a skating school type of atmosphere. Uh, they have some similarities with it today. Uh, but then those kids were really being focused. They would be, the focus was, again, being edge work, um, but not too much hockey skills because they already came from me with that. And then they were put into a spring program. And obviously you lose some kids because you may, they may not like the game, but I always felt that we probably gained 80 to 85% of those beginner skaters and got them involved in the game. So you had mentioned that you essentially write a lesson plan and I'm going to actually jump ahead here because you work with all levels, youth to elite. How do you, how do you map out a practice and have an ability to challenge every single player? Because even when you're talking with Columbus, there's still a, varying abilities within that professional organization yeah my, my lesson plan pat was between my ears i knew what i wanted to do with every club i knew what i wanted to do with a might level i knew what i wanted to do with a bantam level knew what i wanted to do at college junior and pro um and that basically again is working around the athletes bringing fun um and a very progressive program i use that word often when i do these zoom calls or we talk to uh, other coaches, you have to be very progressive as a coach, because if you just keep on bringing the same humdrum ideas and drills and beat drills into kids, it gets very, very old. You know, for a fact, Pat, if you were with me for 20 weeks, when it came to power skills, and I, I, I was the guy who renamed it from power skates to power skills, because Power skates scared a lot of kids because they thought they were going to get edge work for 20 weeks. But I know that you know this for a fact that when you saw me for 20 weeks, you never saw the same drill repeated in 20 weeks. So that was my lesson plan to bring something continuously new. So Pat, what I would do is after I was done with you and your group and all these other groups and all these other levels with all these other clubs, I would write everything down that night. So I would not copy it over the following week on the ice. So I knew what I had done the week before I wrote it down. 
So today I have milk crates of my 30 plus years experience with all the clubs. I have milk crates of notes that I would write up after I was done. So it could be at 11 o'clock at night. It could be midnight or it could be the next morning. Uh, but usually the next morning on the back half of my career, uh, 18 years, I was up very, very early for Chicago Wolves practices. So um, in, in the IHL and in the American Hockey League. But uh, uh, to answer your question, you, you just have to say to yourself, what would you like as an athlete? You played, you love the game. What did you want to want to see coaches bring? And what did you not like what coaches brought? So for instance, I remember in high school, there would be certain gym teachers that would call you by your last name and last name only for four years. But there was a couple of gym teachers that would call you Kenny and respect you and find out that you were playing hockey and ask questions about your hockey. And they were terrific athletes. The two, the two gentlemen that I'm talking about, they're still living. I still keep in touch with them. They're in their late eighties today. And the reason why I have kept in touch with them is my two gym teachers back at Elmwood Park High School in Elmwood Park, Illinois, probably taught me more about athletics than any hockey coach or baseball coach or anybody else. Wow. Two gym teachers. Uh, so that's what kind of impact an educator can have. Um, my my two, two gym teachers were Division I basketball players and baseball players on dual scholarships. So back in the day, I guess you could play both sports. Um, but that just shows you what kind of athlete they were. I had now, Pat, funny story. I had to pull teeth to play ball hockey in gym class. But finally, I taught these two gym teachers, please, please, for me, can we start ball hockey? And we started up one of the greatest ball hockey gym classes of all time. And what I mean by that is we had kids at our school for three months out of the year, my junior and senior year at 6 a.m. for ball hockey. And then, and, and then we were ready to start our, our class. But for three months, we played ball hockey, six in the morning. I want to say we started in November and it went all the way to January. Wow. That and is awesome. What a, what a great, you know, I mean, first of all, to get kids up at that time in the morning, prepare them. First of all, you're teaching kids to be dedicated to something. Um, I mean, maybe a Monday might have been hard for a lot of us because Sunday, you know, you might have been up late doing, you know, whatever, watching TV, whatever the case is. But yeah, the, the, the ball hockey was so, so good, so terrific. But it was something that was never, ever brought until a group of hockey players begged these two gym teachers to bring this ball hockey program to Elmwood Park High School. So I'll never forget that. That's, that's such an awesome story. And uh, hopefully I can inspire kids like that. Those PE teachers did to you. Um, but you were totally right about the, about the, yeah. uh, the lessons that you bring. There was not one drill that was the same. It kept, <laughs> it kept everything interesting. We were always guessing what was next and, you know, it kept it exciting because we never knew what was around the corner. Yeah. And, um, I, I mean, I know, I know I was a hard coach and what I mean by a hard coach, I mean, I, I expected nothing but the best, uh, because I was trying to bring the very, very best. But one thing, Pat, that I think a lot of coaches fail to do when they're teaching large groups and skill work, for instance, is allow the kids to compete within. And that means this organization, let's talk about Crystal Lake in its day, the Crystal Lake Leafs that became the Yellow Jackets in Crystal Lake. My idea was to have them all skate the same, 
compete the same. And obviously there's going to be different levels, but I never wanted a gap like this. I wanted to bring that gap to here. And I wanted our kids to be so close to AAA hockey. And we got there that way because as a coach, I tried to teach competition in amongst not only the leaders, but the kids that were following to become leaders. So that gap went from here to here. And that's why that club was so strong. And that's why so many other clubs are strong because there is good coaches out there that have that same logic and that same thought. But when you allow kids to compete and then you bring that fun into it, those kids are going to go through the wall for you. I love that. And you were, and you also had mentioned uh, your talk about being a progressive coach. And so, which kind of brings me to my next, next question. Uh, there's definitely a progressive uh, players these days, the evolution of the player. There's so much speed, so much skill. You think of a Connor McDavid. Um, mm -hmm. They're just so sick with their speed and skill. How has the, the modern player affected how you coach or has it? Well, it, the modern player, it's, it's scary. You can, you know, you can watch the world series right now or watch a football game right now. And you can see the speed of a guy rounding first base to get the second, you can see the speed in a football game. Well, put a pair of plates on a, on an athlete. And now you're getting a lot of Connor McDavid's uh, and you're getting them in the female game too, with Kendall coin um, and with women's Olympic hockey. So today's trained athlete, obviously is really added, you know, 10 and a half months out of the year at the pro level and the division one level and the Olympic level. But uh, I, um, and this could be a, a you know, a, a call, you know, eventually a podcast later for you and I, but I don't believe youth level hockey should be 11 months out of the year, nor do I believe it should be 10 and a half months. I believe kids have to play multi sports, uh, to be a multi well-rounded athlete. So that's another story for you and I to talk Agree about. 100%. Yes. But to answer your question, working with today's athlete, I'm in complete awe. I was uh, talking to somebody the other day and they said, what was it like being on the ice with Artemi Panarin for two years? And I, I answered it like this. I said, probably one of the greatest players that I will ever see. And that I ever saw that close. So that, you know, you, you bring up a guy that's five foot 10, he's 165 pounds. And you're saying in today's game and with the speed and all and how highly skilled he is that he's one of the greatest players, but it's uh, it, no, it's, it's the truth. So you, you get a chance in the, in the national hockey league, Pat, where I'm very, very blessed to, when you go to New York, you see a Panarin now because you know, he's playing there. McDavid in, in uh, Edmonton, uh, Crosby in Pittsburgh. And then you talk about a team like ours on the back end with Seth Jones and Wawrenski. Um, when we played eight periods against Tampa in the first round of the playoffs just a few weeks back, maybe a few months back now, eight periods of hockey was played the very first game. And to see what those athletes were able to do on both teams, Tampa and the Columbus Blue Jackets, for eight periods of hockey and continue their speed, continue their aggressive play and finish it all the way to the very end. Seth Jones played 65 minutes that night. Jonas Corposalo, I believe made 91 saves that night. So the training behind and the science behind these athletes today, Pat, as you know, you are in the field is just off the charts today. Um, some of those athletes, uh, I was told in between periods by, by certain trainers, 
that some of them after five periods look like they only played one period. To be that conditioned is incredible. But at the same point, Pat, to say it, see it day in and day out, taking guys out in the ice early, assisting in practice. Uh, then, you know, we usually have a split where Bradshaw, our defensive coach, takes the defenseman. I take all the forwards. And then I usually stay on the ice for an extra half hour of players. But to see players up close in practice, it always wows me. And it's because their hands are incredible, their vision, their mind, their feet. That collaboration of that skill set is just off the charts. So to be able to see it this close, where I'm seeing you from my phone right now for this podcast, uh, is, is absolutely amazing. And then you get to see, obviously, the other teams coming into town or on the road. But uh, uh, I've been a very, very blessed guy, Pat, whether it's the likes of working with young players like your, yourself and the thousands and thousands of others that you had mentioned uh, to where I am today. Yeah, it's, it's a great blessing. So that ultimately led you to where you are now. You've been with the Columbus Blue Jackets for five years. Again, three years in a row you've been with the playoffs. Um, what makes them so successful? Because it seems like at the beginning of every year, whether it's writers, they, they don't seem to give give the, them the benefit of the doubt, but they they come back and they're hard to play against and they find ways to win. You know, what's the culture like? Great question. Uh, culture was changed by John Tortorella. He came in. Uh, culture probably took about uh, five years ago, probably took about four months to change. Um, but four months is basically overnight when you're trying to change a locker room, a pro locker room. And what he tried to bring right away, Pat, is another word that goes along with culture is what is our identity? And that's a word that is usually missed in this kind of conversation. So we had to create an identity and our identity is what you're talking about with these writers saying that we are hard to play against. And I know an awful lot of players on other clubs and they said, they even hate playing us in their building. So we are tough because we practice that way. Um, our practices are very highly paced. Um, Torts expects nothing less. So our training camp is really getting out of the gates with pace right off the bat to be able to compete right away because you look at the segments of the season and how important those early games are from October through November and those points. But uh, we want to be a hard-nosed team. And I don't mean with, with, a, with physicality. It's not necessarily that all the time. But it's closing gaps, being on top of loose pucks, winning 50-50 pucks, um, and, and great defensive play. Uh, in a lot of games today, you don't have to throw a check. You can use a stick check. So having a stick on puck throughout the whole entire game and closing gaps that's great defensive play today. Um, the days of heavy-footed players, as we know in, in, in any walk of sport today, those days are gone. These players today are so agile. They're so quick. And that's what we, that's what we try to build upon. We try to build upon our quickness. And we try to create a lot of dirty plays, uh, coming off the walls, uh, funneling pucks towards the net. Uh, and then on our back end, we're, we're, we're big on blocking shots. And if we block the shot, we hopefully, it hopefully goes the other way and we can get through the neutral zone quickly with a couple of passes. And then we create something from there. But uh, um, yeah, culture, culture was changed, Pat. And an, ide and an identity was, it, it rose. Uh, it rose throughout that locker room very, very quickly. And um, that following year, we've never looked back. So I honestly believe even 
John Tortorella's first year was an amazing year to be able to change the culture, but every year has gotten better. And uh, so it's so unbelievable, so unbelievable, excuse me, to be under a likes of John Tortorella, who's going to be a hockey hall of fame coach someday. Uh, Stanley cup winner, um, you know, Jack Adams, that meant so much to me too, to be part of a coaching staff that was part of the Jack Adams uh, with Brad Larson, Brad Shaw, um, Manny Legacy, our coach, our goalie coach, um, to be part of the Jack Adams award, uh, that, that, that's huge. And uh, I remember coming back prior to training camp after Torts won his last Jack Adams and he put it on my desk. The Jack Adams award was on my desk when I got there. And uh, uh, he goes, I want the Jack Adams to be on your desk all year long. And uh, I said, no, it's a, it's, it's yours Torts. It's got to He goes, I don't have any room for it. And he goes, I want you to have it because I know you're a traditionalist. You love stuff about the game and the history of the game. And you can look behind me, Pat, and see nothing but history, but uh, <laughs> uh, and then that's another, uh, you know, uh, podcast where I can walk you around someday uh, throughout my office or basement. But uh, uh, no, that Jack Adams is in his office today. But man, was it nice to be part of that. That's an incredible story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah. So you have a you have a chance to work with uh, Nick Felino, who's the captain over there. But yep. you've also, you know, you work with Tays and other captains. And, you know, yep. there's always talk about the intangibles and what makes them so important to a club. Um, what are those things that, you know, the fan may not know that you can share at least that, you know, makes them such a, a glue within the organization? Well, it's the leadership qualities, I believe off the ice where it starts. And, uh, and then on the ice, uh, those leaders of the Jonathan taste and, and the Nick Felinos, and I have been on the ice often with taste in the past. Um, they, they, they walk the walk bottom line. And what they expect out of the player that's sitting to the left and right of them, uh, they will do themselves. And, um, you know, Jonathan Taze, I mean, being on the ice with him, I I just remember every session I've been on the ice with him, the vein in his neck is always showing and he's going at every drill as if it's the seventh game. Well, there's no different than what I see with Nick Foligno all the time always going at a practice very, very hard. And um, that that's walking that walk I'm talking about. And that's building the culture in amongst the players uh, from another player and from your leader, from, from your leader uh, as a captain. But we, 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 we fail to talk about sometimes uh, the captains have an awful lot of help with lead, a leadership group around them. Uh, our leadership group would be Boone Jenner, Cam Atkinson and Seth Jones around Nick Foligno. So the captains today confide in the leadership group today to correct the wrongs and right that ship off the bat and lead the proper way. But it takes, it takes more than just a captain. It's taking these leadership groups in order to get a whole group of 22 players on, on, on board and on that same ship. And, and ride that ship the right way. And so I'm thinking uh, from a high school coach perspective, mm-hmm. how can how can we foster that amongst amongst the high school athletes? How can we foster that you know that captain, that leadership, and you know what can you do to you know bring it's that? It's very attitude? simple, Pat. It's it's a great question, but it's very simple. And this is something throughout podcasts uh, in the spring and summer, and throughout Zoom calls, I've shared with every everybody across the states, even throughout Europe. And it has been a question that has been brought up and it's a wonderful question. 
but we all know that there's kids that lead and there's ways of teaching those young athletes. If you have a 14 or 15 year old girl aboard that knows how to lead, whether they're leading their track team, their basketball team, their hockey team, whatever, or that gym class. Now we have to have them teach the level down below what it's like to be up on their level and to work with them. And when you teach and, and allow that student to teach others and to lead, a lot of great people will follow and because they want to be right there. And that goes back to that competition I was talking about within. So if you have only one leader in your gym class, try to get that leader to work on two or three. It's not going to happen overnight, but there is two or three young people right underneath them. Maybe not quite right, right there, but that person will hopefully try to get them up there. But with you directing everything and that is teaching that young athlete what it's like to make others around better. And before you know it, I would say over five, six months, that might energize at least 10 other kids to be able to want to be leaders. A great way of doing it, and I was, Pat, you always remember this, is I never wanted the same leaders in front of the line all the time. If I ran four to six lines in a skill session, I wanted somebody to take your spot. If I saw you up at the front for two weeks, I wanted you pushed back three because I wanted somebody else to be up in the front. And that's another way of building. Uh, not that I was doing anything against you, but I knew that you would always lead. And I know that leader will always lead. Um, but to have others at the front of the line is so, so important. And it's also important to have those leaders at the end of a line to work with kids that are, uh, you know, don't feel as confident or maybe hiding a little bit. Uh, and that's where leadership qualities can blend from the back end of that line towards the front. But Pat, it's not rocket science. It's just ways of what we can do in our world to make people better and not just athletes, but people better. And uh, at the pro level, it's called putting your arm around a, a, a pro. I, I, I love putting my arm around a pro because he's not getting points and this and that. I might be that voice and I believe I am that voice. So that's why that, that NHL or will see me in the next morning and we'll work on things that I may disguise that he may not be doing, but I'll bring to a practice and make seven or eight others do it, but it might be for that one. So there's a little secret. That's a, a secret of the trade right there. Um, <laughs> that if you're trying to teach one athlete, something really, really uh, something that pertains to their game, you don't want to just make everybody do it for the sake of doing it. You're making everybody do it because it's a great skill. It's a, it's something that they should all have in their skill set but it really is for that one, one player that you're bringing up the next morning. And there's no question that player is going to run through a wall for you after you take in the extra time to put your, uh, your arm around him. But uh, there's no question that you, you bring, you come with hundred percent energy and passion. Um, I've never heard someone say that you come to the rink with a sad face, not happening. Um, how have you been no, able the to. Only, the only time I ever got sad, Pat was if I ever heard, and it didn't happen too many times throughout my career, but if I heard the odd time, a parent saying my, my, my kid doesn't like your power skill sessions. And I'd say, why? And usually I heard from the parent because he has to work. So that parent was sticking up for me. And I said, well, let me speak to him. 
and some you can help out and some others you didn't because they just didn't have the work ethic. But uh, um, that kind of used to sad me if I couldn't get to a young athlete sometimes. And it might, it might take three months. Uh, but the majority, I think I got to. I'm curious, how, you, how have you been able to sustain that passion every day for 30 plus years? Because, um, you know, that could weigh, you know, people, you know, waver in and out of uh, their interests, yeah. but you've, you've been able to keep it at such a high level for that long. Well, it's, uh, it's another wonderful question. I think it takes a certain individual to do it. And that's the difference between, you know, strong coaching and coaches that are weaker. Um, the educational side of it, uh, it, it's, it's, it's bringing an inner drive and expecting others to follow. And expect, I always expected coaches that were around me to follow. Um, so you were in the orchestra pit, pit leading that band, but I needed everybody to play every single instrument as perfectly as they could. That's the way I looked at it. Guess what? Certain nights is going to be off. We're not that band's not going to be sounding good, but the next week it better sound good. That's the way I always looked at it. And uh, I, I remember uh, uh, I always had words that if you were with me for 20 weeks and say your level was on the ice with me and they had a, tough night. They weren't handling pucks. They weren't listening. Uh, there was a lot of distraction. There might've been a full moon outside. I would always warn everybody that this skate was not great tonight, but it'll never happen again. And at least this year, I said, you know, one out of 20, I don't mind the odd one being a little foul, but we weren't going to get a second. We weren't going to get a third. And um, that was very, very important to me because that's what my culture was like and, and the identity I was trying to bring to kids. Um, and that is, I do understand it's a long day for kids, but when it came to, you know, getting up early in the morning, school, you know, maybe not having a dinner and then getting on the ice and then doing homework and all that. But I always felt getting to the rink was your, your, your sanctuary. And I believe, you know, athletics can be your sanctuary and the arts can be your sanctuary. So um, that's where I expected nothing but the best because it was a place that we can really, really let loose. I always loved at the end of practice, you'd bring us together and you have a message, which brings me to my next thing. I remember a story that you had told um, about perspectives and you had said that you uh, were watching a sled hockey game in Colorado, I believe, and it just moved you so much, um, you know, how passionate the players were given the circumstance. How do you keep things in perspective, whether it's for yourself or even NHL players? And do you have any familiar stories like the one you share with us? Well, the, the, the sled hockey one, I, I think it really hit home on me when I was working for the mission, the AAA organization, and we might have been in uh, Addison's rink at that time. And I would go from healthy AAA kids that were very talented and walk through the lobby and then see these kids with sled hockey. And I saw their eth work ethic. I saw them having fun. Um, I saw, you know, who was, who was behind it. Uh, and running it. And I said, gosh, that, that's a special group. So I asked to be involved uh, here and there. And uh, that, that that's, that's something that uh, was very inspiring to me. And what, you know, what was very inspiring to me too, is I never worked with large groups. And since we're on the subject of being inspired in the game, I never worked with large groups of girls. It was always girls on boys teams. 
the odd hockey coach that ran a hockey team would maybe hire me for a private with their girls team, but I didn't work with the masses. And then all of a sudden I am hired to be part of the women's Olympic team. And I'm part of that for three and a half years prior to going to Sochi in 2014. So I went from shame on me, not working with a lot of girls to the highest level, the NHL of women's hockey. And seriously, I didn't know, I was working with Katie Stone, the head coach of uh, uh, Harvard. And my first question for Katie was when I got on the ice in Quinnipiac was, Katie, are they girls or are they ladies? And he says, they're ladies. And I said, well, I just was wondering because we call guys the boys still. And she goes, no, these are ladies. But that's how green I was of how I was going to address the women. But being around that inspired me to work with so many girls programs. And I still continue to do that with CYA. I was just recently out with the CYA girls, U16s just recently. So I probably would not be doing that unless it was for the Olympic team. But uh, inspiration comes from seeing so many different levels, seeing so many different types of athletes, so many different types of coaches, and weeding out the, the, the coaches that don't bring something substantial to the table and remembering the great coaches that can lead and teach. And that's who I wanted to surround myself with. So. Yes, I always had a story at the end of our skates, Pat, an inspirational story because not you guys weren't just young athletes. You were young people that that I wanted to keep at athletics and make sure that you were never on a street corner. And you had mentioned that you had worked with the women's team. You won a silver medal in Sochi. Um, we all saw at the All-Star Game, Kendall Coyne, how unbelievably fast she was. Yep. It's incredible. Where do you see the women's game evolving from here? And how, how good, how, how, how so very good and skilled are they? Pat, uh, first of all, blew me away when I started working with them right away. Um, their listening habits, um, their pro habits that they all have instilled in them. Uh, you got to realize they are, they're, they're plugging away for four years just to get to the Olympics. That's a long time. Uh, obviously there's college players that get involved in the national program and there's post-grads that are part of it, but, uh, they're fighting for one thing, Pat, they're, they're fighting for that, for that gold medal. And, uh, the speed of their game was incredible. Um, again, dedication and what they expected from a coaching staff was incredible. So, uh, the speed of their game is, is something um, and so are, so, so are, you know, beyond Canada and us, the Swiss, the Swedes, the Finns, it's all great, great hockey. It's getting better and better because there's so many great coaches now being involved in the women's game. Um, and I don't believe right now the women's program, uh, with USA hockey right now even has a female coach in it. So it's all, it's all males right now. Um, whether or not they react differently to a male coach or a female coach, I'm not sure that way, but we had a mix in 2014. Uh, I believe we had uh, two females and three, three males. So, uh, um, but the game is extremely quick. Um, they're very heady players. They've got great vision. And yes, uh, when you, when you're watching the Kendall coins bust down the left side, that's what makes Olympic hockey so exciting. 
I mean, it's one of the most watched sports during Olympics, during the Olympics is the hockey, the women's hockey. Uh, and it's actually shown that it's probably been one of the most watched the last two Olympics. So uh, that just shows you how great of a game it is. Would you say going to Sochi was one of your uh, greatest experiences that you've had? <clears throat> no doubt. Uh, a great, great experience. I'd never been over to Russia Sochi was like, uh, uh, you know, in February when you were there, it was 55 and 60 degrees, believe it or not. It's a, it's a seaside town with a climate, with a, some warm belt that comes through it. And uh, the weather was extremely warm and uh, beautiful sunsets and rocky beaches and this and that. But uh, it, was, it was different than possibly, you know, Moscow and St. Petersburg in the wintertime, which would be a little bit dirtier with snow. But yes, uh, Sochi is something I'd love to get back there someday because uh, it's amazing what they did with the buildings, uh, the, uh, the actual buildings and the arenas and uh, the homes on the water. I'd love to see it today. And so you brought home some hardware. And speaking of hardware, behind you, you have a, quite the collection of, uh, of hockey skates and, and golf yes. memorabilia. That is awesome. So what's the, yes. what's the oldest skate that you own? Oh, I've got uh, a, a, lot of, a lot of skates that I have are up to 300 years old and and uh um again that's maybe part two of our next podcast um but you know things in my office like that olympic jersey um that that came from sochi uh signed by every single player but it's not just signed with a signature pad it's signed with an uh, a paragraph every player wrote a paragraph to me um you know in this office uh you know i've got i'm looking at Wayne Gretzky stick, Mario Lemieux, Bobby Orr's. Um, I got a 1961 hockey stick here from the Blackhawks signed, completely signed by a 61 team. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's it's a little different, this office. It's it's one of a kind, and, um, you know, it's it's fun. I'll bring over the Bobby Orr one here for you. And, um, <laughs> you'll see I'm out of the picture there for a little bit, but I don't know if you can see Bobby Orr's name on it. Wow. Written That's on incredible. It. Yeah, and he shaved his handle all the way. He had a handle that was completely shaved all the way. But yeah, it was did you get the inspiration for that? By the way, for shaving the uh, handle, I remember you used to shave the handle. Yeah, but not like this. This is extremely <laughs> thin. Yes, I well, I always had a small hand with an an adult wooden stick, so it was important for me to have a thinner uh, shafted stick because my dad would shave and bring it to work and shave them for me. But yeah, I kept that shaved handle all my life, as you know. But yeah, this is a this is a Victoriaville. Bobby Orr later on in his life never taped his blade, so this is this is uh, he started with a lot of tape on his stick at one time early in his career. Then he went to one strip, and then he went to no tape at all. And um, so, in a very very small stick. I mean, players back in the day used extremely small sticks. It usually came up to the sternum right here. Today, they're usually at the nose or at the eyes. Today. I always believed when you're on skates, a good, you know, guide was at your chin. Uh, but when I was young, it was at your right here at your sternum. So a lot of the old sticks, whether it's Bobby Hull's in my office here and Stan Makita's in my office here, they were really short, short sticks. But uh, that's why those players were so great around their feet. That's why they were so wristy in tight uh, because they used a short stick. What's been the most unusual place where you found uh, one of your memorabilia? Well, I've traveled the world with it from, from Germany, through Holland, uh, through Nova Scotia. Um, 
uh, all the way to Glasgow, Scotland, I found a unique pair of skates uh, in a junk shop of all places. And uh, I've only got one pair of skates ever in Scotland. And I found a really unique pair uh, that are in my house. And I think they were brought over from possibly uh, Finland or Sweden because they're either Finnish or they're, they're Dutch, or I should say uh, Swedish, uh, but ended up in Scotland. But uh, the best skates out of the collection, Pat, come from the east coast of the States or the eastern part of Canada throughout Nova Scotia. Uh, and the reason why the history is so old there with skates. So, um, yeah, I, I've got an awful lot of great pieces and uh, great Blackhawk memorabilia. And, 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 no, and it doesn't, uh, it really, uh, I, I, I keep on collecting today. I find myself still collecting today the odd piece and I enjoy it. Um, an awful lot of pieces were given to me uh, throughout my life. And um, so fortunate that uh, so many pro players gave up equipment and this and that, but I was way ahead of the game. I never bought a piece or anything like that. So many things were given to me, but uh, someday I'll have to have you over and maybe we'll do a show out of my office. Absolutely. I can't wait to do that. And uh, I also can't thank you enough. This has been, it's been so awesome to talk to you and uh, I'm a huge fan and I'm going to be rooting for the blue jackets during this upcoming season. Hopefully it gets started at some point in the near future. Um, but thank you again for everything. And I look forward to talking to you again. Uh,